Well, as I mentioned this morning, I want to begin a, a new series on Sunday evenings. That last hymn that we sang, Wonderful Words of Life, verse 2, had that phrase in there, wooing us to heaven, those wonderful words of life. And I, I've always just kind of fixated on that phraseology. I think the hymn writer really got that right. Part of what the Word of God is designed to do is to, to really have a, not this hit us over with the stick, you know. I, I meet people that are coming out of different religions, and they have a sour experience with religion. Uh, maybe the authority figures in their life uh, were kind of beating up on them, sometimes literally. Um, I've heard people talk about, you know, getting smacked by the uh, in parochial schools and things like that. Not that there isn't a, a place for chastening or for bad behavior, but I think sometimes you think about God's just waiting to whack you. And really, God really is wooing us if we understand the message of God's Word. It has corrective elements in it, uh, but if we love the Lord, then we need to look at the Bible as a love letter uh, that's designed to help us to get to know Him more intimately, and how we can engage in that relationship. And so, I've titled this series on Psalm 119, The, the Wooing of God's Word. If you take uh, something like a wedding ring, and you give it to a small toddler, maybe a two or three-year-old, and they're playing around with it, they're, they're probably going to be very fascinated with it. Uh, the texture of it, uh, perhaps the shininess of it, and so they can appreciate it for, for what it is. They might even try to, you know, slide it around on the floor and hear it tinkle, and everybody might be like, oh, do you know what that is? You know, be careful with that. Take that same child and advance him a few years. Maybe he's a upper grammar school now. He's had some education. He's been through science class, and He's now looking at his mother's ring. Maybe he has no recall of playing with it as a little toddler. Uh, but he, he picks it up and he happens to hold it to the light and he sees this amazing spectrum of colors that, that pour through it as it just bounces off of the, uh, the different facets of this diamond. And he's thinking about what he's learned in science class and about... Uh, how special this gem is in his own way. Now, advance that same child into adulthood. Maybe he's decided to become a gemologist. He's had training. Maybe he's become some sort of apprentice. And he comes back to visit his mother, and she's taken her ring off and laid it down so she can do the dishes. And he, hey, Mom, let me look at your ring. And he reaches in his pocket and pulls out one of those jeweler loops and puts it on his, holds it up, and he begins to look at it. He's looking at the same ring, right? He's looking at the exact same ring. But now he's, he's looking at the value, the, the imperfections in a much more detailed way, and maybe even trying to appraise the value of that. Same person, What's same ring, but what's different? Well, he's grown, he's matured, and so he can appreciate more about that precious gem. Well, when we come to the Word of God, we need to realize that it's always special, 
it's always invaluable. And when you're talking to someone that's just, you know, maybe a, a small child in Sunday school class and learning the story of Moses, or learning about David and the courage of Daniel, uh, they're, they're learning some good lessons and they're appreciating it. But then they advance in their understanding of some certain topics of the Bible. And maybe now into their teen years, they can appreciate the truths even more. And then you come back to that, that same story, that same account of Daniel, or that same account of Moses, and you're, you're in the True Seekers class here at Anchor Baptist Church, or the Bridge class, and you hear people say, you know, I've heard this story of Joseph all my life, and now that I look at it again, I, I see things in, in a way I hadn't seen before. Has the Word of God changed, folks? No, you have. God is growing you, and He's helping you to appreciate that. You're gaining value from it. And so, hopefully, you admire the Word of God. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. Tonight's more of an overview, and it's probably going to feel more didactic. I'm going to try not to make this into just a lecture here, but I thought it would be helpful to consider the chapter as a whole before we dive into it and take it into smaller pieces so that we understand what God has given to us here in this wonderful chapter. And I'm not even going to hit everything, but I want to start by talking about how God calls us to admire the facets of His Word. There really is something to appreciate in this particular chapter. Now, we, we know that because it's in a psalm, therefore it's part of what we call poetry. Our ears are usually accustomed to thinking of poetry as rhyming of sound in certain meter of time. Uh, roses are red, violets are blue, you know, that sort of thing, and, and, and your mind just kind of goes that way. Hebrew poetry isn't necessarily a rhyming of sound or even of a, a meter of speaking it out. Often is a, uh, a paralleling of thought or contrasting, especially in Proverbs. You'll, you'll see the wise man is such and such, but the foolish is this. Uh, and you'll see that kind of poetry involved. But here, there's several things that are going on. It really is a masterpiece of human literature. In fact, secular group, uh, literature uh, people analyze this and appreciate its value, even if they don't believe it's inspired of God, can appreciate the value of what is here in front of us. So what do we have in Psalm 119? Well, we have a total of 176 verses. I don't know how your Bible looks because depending on how your Bible has been published, every Bible might look a little bit different in how it's laid out. But hopefully you can see somehow that it is chunked up into eight verse segments because that's actually how the Holy Spirit gave it to us through David. And we call each of those chunks a strophe or a strophe. People sometimes disagree on how to pronounce that. But basically a segment. And there are 22 of these and they all have eight verses. Say, why 22? Because there is a different section for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 
Again, you might look down at your Bible, if yours looks anything like mine, you might even see centered above verse 1, under where it says Psalm 119, uh, the spelling out of the Hebrew first letter of the alphabet, which is Aleph. And maybe it even gives you the character of that alphabet. So here is the Hebrew alphabet. Not going to teach you Hebrew here, but just so you can see it, we're used to 26 letters. They have 22. Uh, one interesting uh, tidbit about Hebrew, they have no vowels in their alphabet. That makes it interesting, right? And so for centuries, the Hebrews wrote only in consonants. Now, if you speak these words, you hear vowels because they would be inserted by, by context. They would just know because they knew their language. But at some point, the scribes, the Masoretic scribes, believed that it was important to preserve the language, and, and so they began to add in what they called vowel pointing, which kind of looks like a smattering of Morse code, little dots and dashes around the Hebrew letters that then helps you decipher the sounds of those vowels, or we call them vowel pointings. Just extra there as you're looking down, you might even see that depending on how your Bible is printed, some of those extra little doodads uh, around the uh, different Hebrew letters that are there. And so here's each of the letters, and there's going to be one at the beginning of each of these strophes. There are eight primary synonyms in this whole chapter, 176 verses, eight primary synonyms for God's Word. And we know that we're reading it in English, and we know that God's Word is inspired. We also know that God has preserved His Word perfectly for us so that we can hold our English Bibles and say, I have God's Word. I have His truth. I don't have to doubt that. At the same point, we do realize that when God breathed it out originally through the human authors, He did so in a different language, Hebrew in the Old Testament primarily, and in the New Testament, Greek. So in the little handout that I gave to you, you have a grid, and feel free to add as much or as little as you want there. But going down the one side, I have not written it in Hebrew, I have written it phonetically in English what these different Hebrew words are. And then you look under that each of those words and you'll see the letter H and a number. All right, class, anyone want to venture a guess as to what that's about? All right, yes, Strong's Concordance. And in case you're not familiar with that, Augustus Strong took and indexed every word in our Bible. Huge book, right? And we have if you're, if you're not familiar with that, we have a couple copies in our library here in the conference room. be glad to show you that. Most people today use some sort of electronic device. It's a lot more efficient to search the Bible that way. But still, even in these electronic devices, still use these this indexing system that he gave to us. So that if you want to look up the Hebrew word or the Greek word behind an English word in your Bible... You can do so just by using this index number. And so that's what that is for, so that you can be all Hebrew scholars, okay? And 
the point of this is that this can be something that you will use in your own personal study, but also help you as we move forward in these messages, because we're going to keep meeting up with these words. They're going to be like familiar friends that keep coming back in different pairings and different groupings. We won't see every word every time, but I think it's good to understand the nuances because God doesn't do anything randomly. He didn't just say, well, I'm kind of bored with that word. Let's switch it up and use a different word. It sounds better. Well, there's different nuances to each word. And so therefore, it's important for us to know about these words. Now, this is what the first eight verses would look like if you opened up a Hebrew Bible. Anyone want to read that for us? Okay. At one time, I could. I, st- I, I need helps now. Uh, my Hebrew is very rusty, mostly because I have so many electronic helps uh, that goes a long way. But I wanted you to see this visibly. One thing you'll notice that's different about how Hebrew is written than English is what? Yes, it's, it's written opposite, right? It goes from one to the other side. And what we're used to, instead of reading from left to right, they write from right to left. And so you got to begin on that side. That was hard for me to get used to. But I've highlighted the first letter of every verse. What do you notice? It's the same. And it is that first letter of the alphabet. And you'll see that if you opened up a Hebrew Bible all the way through the chapter. This is part of the poetry. And so if you're in section 2, every verse 9 through 16 is going to begin with the letter Beth. But this is the letter Aleph. And so again, part of the mastery, and so if anyone wants to ever criticize me for my alliterations and sermons, I'm like, hey, it's inspired. David did it bar none better than anybody else. I mean, through 176 verses, uh, he, he started, and the Holy Spirit inspired it. So it's good, all right? Of course, we don't want to force it, uh, but we, we can see part of the poetry of this. But not only do we want to admire the facets, what about the functions? And this is where the sheet comes in that I've given to you. Many significant words. But these eight Hebrew words, these synonyms, they each occur either about 19 to 25 times throughout the chapter. So none of them are insignificant. Peering in almost every one of these sections. And so let's talk about each of them briefly. I don't want to spend a lot of time, but just to kind of touch each one of them and to give you an idea. And so what is the English word that's translated behind this Hebrew word most often? Not 100% of the time, but most often. And then also, what is its meaning? How do we respond? How does the, the psalm suggest that we respond to this particular word of God, and then what are the blessings that come from it? So what about this first one? Well, the word is Torah. You've probably heard that one, right? And that's actually when you're talking about the Torah, you are giving an English transliteration of the Hebrew word. You're speaking Hebrew when you say the word Torah. We use it to describe the first five books of our Bible, the Torah. The Pentateuch, as it's often called. The word Torah, 
appears 25 times in Psalm 119. And the meaning, if we could put it this way, seems to have the idea in context of the the wholeness of the word. In other words, that every bit of it, but even maybe a, a little bit more in depth to that is its expressing of God's expectations. In other words, what does God expect from me? We could say it this way in the vernacular. God, what do you want from me, right? Well, that's why He's given us His Word. So we know what God wants from us. So how do we respond as we think about this word Torah? Well, I don't know about you, but when when I want to please someone, I want to know what their expectations are. I've had a boss, and I, I might go to them and say, listen, how... How can I best serve you? What should I do if I finish my, my chore and I still have time on the clock? You know, I, I want to know what your expectations are. Once I know that, guess what? It's going to give a certain level of confidence of how I proceed. And that's one of the responses that we're going to see every time this word comes up or often as it comes up. It gives a confidence because he has not forgotten or forsaken His Word. God has not forsaken His Word. Sometimes people think it's antiquated. It's out of date. It's an old book. No, God's still using it. He's still blessing it. It's how I know what He wants for me, and He gives me confidence, therefore. And so there's a particular blessing that comes from being rightly related to Torah, the law. One of that is this blameless life. These attitudes towards Torah lead to walking with a blamelessness. We are also freed from the consequences of following the false or wicked way. Hey, I, I know what I'm supposed to be doing, so I, as long as I'm doing this, I'm doing what God's law says, I don't have to be consumed with, am I getting it wrong? This, is, this life is full of wonder and delight. The life of following God's expectations, not heavy, not begrudging, oh, Lord, what do I have to do today? Especially looking at God's Word as a revelation of compassion upon us. We look at God as our Heavenly Father when we become His children, I hope. And and, and a a rightly related child to the Heavenly Father would say, I want to please my dad. I want to know uh, what it means to live in this home, be part of this family. And so that's the idea of Torah. The second word is debar. This is translated 24 different times as either word or words, plural. The idea, the nuance of this is Uh, something that is a common or a general word for speaking or things that are said. It has very much the the verbal expression of God. God's using this so we really pick up on the fact that God is speaking. That's kind of important because we don't hear God's audible voice. Sometimes we might imagine, boy, it had been really neat to be there the day that Jesus was baptized and you heard a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. Oh, I would give anything to hear God's voice. Guess what? 
if you're reading your Bibles, you're hearing God's voice. He's speaking, and He wants us to look at His Word that way. The psalmist keeps and promises to keep what God speaks. He does not forget it. Just like, you know, you're told, pay attention, I'm going to give you some instructions. You know, sometimes we tell that to children, or someone tells us that. What God speaks becomes the basis for His confidence. Uh, uh, talking about the, the psalmist here, for, so our confidence. David rises early and cries out for help, and then he trusts in what God has spoken and waits for the promises, asking God to remember what He has said. David believes that when what God has spoken has been settled in heaven, we'll see that in verse 89 and also when we get to verse 160, it's an everlasting truth. When people tell us something, you know, sometimes we're thinking, I wish I could record that secretly, right? I wish I could somehow capture them saying that. Because, number one, they, they might go back on their word, or they might just plain forget. Now, that, that doesn't ever happen to the male population, because men don't ever forget what they say, uh, I jest. But sometimes we, we kind of cast certain things upon God, and we might subconsciously imagine them a certain way. But God's words are settled. We don't have to worry about that. So what is a blessing? Well, a blessing is that keeping that which God speaks leads to a life that is pure. We're going to see that when we get to verse 9 of Psalm 119. God speaking revives the soul of David that was cleaving to the dust. What imagery that is, right? There's this idea of really being depressed and discouraged. And then he goes to the Word of God and he he senses God speaking. I'm, I'm hearing God's conversation. And we often say this. How do, you have a, how do you communicate with God? Well, prayer is me talking to Him. Reading my Bible is Him speaking back to me. Very true. In verse 28 of Psalm 119, we'll see that it strengthens our soul that is full of grief. And on and on we could go. Verse 42 is going to talk about trusting God's speech, equipping the hearer with an answer to reproach, when someone is saying disparaging things about you, you can go to God's Word for help and assistance and find strength in that. In other words, hey, my God's voice in my ear and in my mind is way more important than someone else and the unkind words that they may be saying to me. And so, the idea of God's spoken word. Then we have this edah, often translated as testimony or the plural testimonies. It's occurring 24 times in our Psalm 119. The essence of its meaning is uh, giving insight into God's revelation. It highlights the word's soundness. In other words, it's it's reliable, it's dependable, it gives a clear witness to what is true. Just like you would go into a courtroom, you would hope that the testimony that's given under oath is verifiable, you can count on it. Someone's life may be depending on it, but you know, people can perjure themselves in a human court, can't they? 
God's word is never perjury. It's always, his testimony is always exact and right. So how do we respond to that thinking of God's word in that way as a testimony? Well, the psalmist does several things. He rejoices in the way, in the way of these testimonies. He observes them. He meditates on them. He speaks of them before kings. He goes on and talks about turning his feet to them, delighting in them, considering them. On and on he goes. You can just hear the celebratory voice of David as he's talking about how precious it is to think of God, God's Word as testimonies. And as he does that, there's a blessing that comes. He's confident that reproach and contempt can be taken away from him. In other words, hey, there may be false testimony out there, but God's testimony is the one that matters ultimately. It's the one that's going to stand. It may happen in this life. It may be in heaven someday that we will be vindicated. He knows that he will not be ashamed for kings when he speaks because, you know what, he knows the truth. And he knows God knows the truth. Friend, that's how we need to think often. I have, I have often uh, in my life, uh, I found myself trying to be very diligent, super careful about how I say things and how I present things and thinking, man, I really don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I, I really want to make sure that I communicate this, my heart well in this. I don't want to oversay it because I don't want the person to be insulted by being pedantic about this either. It's like, you know, and so sometimes I'm, I might even find myself a little stressed. My wife could tell you this. And, uh, and yet, you know what? I can do all of that, and the person could still have reproach towards me. And I'm like, ah, that's not fair. I did everything right. Come on. And maybe you've been there before. And you're like, you know what, they, they want to assume, they want to say that this is the way it was handled or the way it came across. And I'm like, you know what, God, you know and I know. And in the end, that's all that really matters. And so, wonderful way to think of God's Word, this edad, the testimony. There's another one, misfat, mishpat, translated as judgment or judgments. Again, 23 times they're... There is uh, uh, at least one place where the same word is translated as ordinance, another kind of similar to judgment. But what does it mean? Well, it's very near to the New Testament concept of agape, right? We say, what's agape? Well, that's the Greek word. The Greek word for what, folks? Love, right? But not just any kind of love, because, you know, when you get to Greek and you talk about love, there's different words for love. And so that one has the idea of a giving, sacrificial love. It's where you find John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He loved, he agape the world. That he did what? He gave. So the, the verse even defines it for us in that way. So this idea, and you might be thinking, wow, judgment, judgments, Giving love, how does that all connect together? Well, it involves insight into God's revelation, highlights, highlighting the decisions of leaders in their work to encourage justice in the community. Hopefully, as you're striving for justice, you're doing it because you genuinely care about the people 
that you're responsible for. There is such a thing as an unjust judge, isn't there? That's really an oxymoron, okay, to, to call him a judge at all. It's just simply meaning he's in that position, but he doesn't get judgment. He doesn't understand what it's about. Maybe he's self-serving. Uh, maybe he is showing partiality to other people. Uh, maybe he's crooked and receiving money. We don't have to worry about the edicts that come down from our righteous God. His judgments are always right, and he's always motivated by genuine love for us. The case laws of Israel came from this need for love. The judges made their decisions as the encouragements towards love. Listen, we, we really need to care for one another, and so there needs to be equity. There's a problem between two people in a civil argument, let's reconcile this. That's what reconciliation is all about. It's about love. And so that's part of what God's Word is designed to do. Now, what about a response? Well, knowing his need, David's need, and having chosen to live for love, he keeps this encouragement before his face. We'll look at a couple of these verses. For instance, in verse 30, if you have your Bible open to Psalm 119. And you can look some of these up on your own as well. He says, I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. And so this is the encouragement. You're like, I'm trying to live with integrity, equity towards my fellow man. And so I'm going to operate on the basis of God's loving truth in my life. It's a good path. He waits for them to have impact. And just a couple verses later in verse 43, he says, Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in thy judgments. In other words, not getting the immediate response from practicing this, but I'm holding to it because I know it's the right way to operate, knowing that in time it will be fulfilled. So what is the blessing? Meditating on this mishpat takes away David's dread of reproach and oppression. You see that? You can look those up in verse 39, 84, 121. In other words, he, he spends some thinking about this when he gets a little anxious, when he's ready to abandon the program, he stops and he reminds himself of the truth about God's judgments in all of this. Even though it's not happening uh, as far as reconciling with people in the here and now as quickly as he would like, it doesn't change the fact that God's approach is still the best. And when he remembers this, he is very comforted. How about another word? How about this mitzvah? You say, ooh, that sounds strangely familiar, mitzvah. Well, put a bar in front of it, bar mitzvah, right? And you think, it, that's what Jewish boys do, right? And bar is Hebrew for son. Mitzvah, we often say, means law. And that's, that's a good uh, translation of that. That's probably how most Jewish... But the real nuance of it is the idea of specific commandments. And that's, that's also what they mean. And so if a Jewish person's talking about the law, they might be taking up, talking about 
the entirety of it, like the Torah. It might also be talking about the individual commands of this. 21 times it's used. What does it mean? It has insights into God's revelation. It highlights the, the right to give specific direction, guidance. You might think about God's Ten Commandments, right? It gives very specific direction. And it's designed to encourage a certain response from people. What is that response? Well, the psalmist looks at on what God commands, and he's able to analyze that. And as he does, more than this, he's knowing that they are hidden to the natural man, right? Even the New Testament tells us that. The things of God are foolishness to the natural man because they're spiritually discerned. That was true in the Old Testament. It's always true. Unsaved people can't unlock the true understanding of what God's Word is all about. And yet, David finds himself seeking them with all of his heart. Psalm 119 and verse 10, for instance, With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments, from thy mitzvah. And so it is. There was this longing. He pants after them with longing in Psalm 119, verse 131. Is there a blessing? There is. Sometimes we think, wow, a lot of do's and don'ts. How can that be a blessing? Well, if you know what the do's and don'ts are and you are conscientious about lovingly following God's guidance, then you won't be ashamed when you understand them. If you're ever given an employee handbook and you read through it and there's something you don't understand, the best thing for you to do is to seek out someone to say, so what does this mean? Because I definitely don't want to be an infraction. I don't want to violate this. I don't want to get in trouble. And so also true with the Word of God. That's where discipling comes in. That's where studying the Word of God comes in. As he gives himself to these commandments, he will be kept from wandering kind of keeps us in our lane spiritually. They help him cope with being a stranger in this earth. We're aliens, we're pilgrims, right? And wow, the world has its own set of rules. Don't let them lie, lie to you. When they say, oh, we don't have rules. In fact, we're anti-establishment. Everybody does what they want in their own eyes. Those are a law unto themselves, you know? And so we need to realize that we operate so much better. Life has so much more peace if we understand what God's mitzvah is. Then we have this chok. It's translated as statutes, not statues that you'd see in a park, but statutes, 21 different times, either plural or singular. It alludes to, though, engravings in public places, Strangely enough, not, um, not the idea of statues, like you would see a shaped, you know, carved like that, but that they would actually chisel into the granite, into the stone, very important truths or guidelines that needed to be known. It highlights the public permanent and binding aspect into everyday life. And so it is. That's one of the reasons why God gave uh, Moses the Ten Commandments. Uh, you know, it's the, 
to cure all headaches, as one person said. God gave Moses two tablets. He didn't say call him in the morning, right? Bad joke, okay? Moving on. Uh, but he chiseled them in stone. Why? It was to show the, the very grave importance of what was there. So how do we respond? Well, the psalmist commits to keeping them over many, many times. Lots of different verses. Verse 5, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. You know, as I, I see these things that are, are commonly understood and known, even in the consciences of men, you know, my, I have a proclivity, I have an inclination because of my flesh to not go that way. Oh, Lord, it would be so nice if I just automatically did what was right and it was actually hard to do what was wrong, right? And so he's, he's really praying that way. God, change my wanter. He wants God to teach him those statutes in their way. He wants to sing them of them at the public assemblies, showing how important they are. Is there a blessing that comes from this? There sure is. It teaches the psalmist about God's loving kindness and His goodness. The psalmist came to appreciate afflictions as disciplines. Oh, it's hard. I'm hurting. Uh, This whammed me from out of the blue. I wasn't expecting this. Lord, I I thought you loved me. Why did you let this happen? That's, That's how we tend to think sometimes. But as we grow in our walk with the Lord, we realize, hey, God uses afflictions for good. And as, these, as this discipline in our mind during afflictions come, it encourages us to lean on God's statutes, doing the right thing even when it's challenging. I don't necessarily need a, a pat on the back. I don't need an infusion of sunshine on the day that I had a really good you know, status you know, of keeping God's expectations in my life. No, understanding of I'm doing what God would ask me to do. Two more. This one is pictum, translated in our Bibles as precepts, 21 different times. It means to, and by 21 times in Psalm 119, other places of our Old Testament as well, it means to attend to closely for the purpose of taking appropriate action. In other words, I'm really focusing on what's being said here because I know I have to respond to this. I've got to do something after this. It's often used of overseers, of commanders. And so it's be like someone going to boot camp, right? Basic training. And they here's your instructions, and you're listening up to what the, the, the drill instructor is saying, right? Because in a minute, you've got to then jump in and do it. And if you're standing there, it's like, hey, could you repeat that again? You know, I don't quite get it. Or he finds you wandering around on the parade ground somewhere. It's like, yeah, I remember one and two, but I forgot what three was, right? And so the response is a very caring attitude towards instructions. And that they ought to be kept diligently. Lord, I'm going to memorize your word. I'm going to hide it in my heart. I don't want it to be forgotten. It's special. It will not be wasted time to, to have these things uh, forever uh, carried around here. And there is a blessing. These precepts 
allow a person to walk at liberty. I remember when Jonathan was studying for his commercial contractors, you know, exam, and I was, remember thinking, you know, how neat it is. I'm sure he still has to look a lot of stuff up, but to ask him a question, and sometimes he can just tell me, hey, well, you know, for code, it has to be this much here, and it has to be uh, the, the every nail has to go in every six inches here, but it can be 12 inches here. I mean, kind of blows my mind, you know, uh, being able to walk around with that kind of construction knowledge. But it wouldn't be very practical if every little act had to run back and forth to the book. You wouldn't get much done. You need to be able to work on the project and saying, this is what happens here. This is how you flash this window. Guess what? We, that's why we disciple. That's why we study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So as we enter into daily life, guess what? We've got God's code book with us in this way. We know his precepts. Well, how about Imra? This is the word word, okay? Sounds a little strange, right? But has a very grammatical aspect to it, used 19 different times in this chapter, meaning insight into God's revelation, highlights the things that he, he says, and specifically the promises. Now, you might be picking up on some of these tonight. It seems like there's a little bit of overlap, kind of like one of those Venn diagrams where they lay these circles and you have the, the, the yellow and there's a little bit of the, the blue overlapping the yellow and you see a little bit of green. And that's the way some of these words work too as well. Because we've already had a word that, that talks about God's spoken truth. But what is the response that we see the psalmist having to this when it occurs? For instance, in verse 11, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. A lot of us can quote that one. Word, that's the Imrah. And to have this placed into my heart so that when I am faced with a challenging situation, my flesh is raising up and Satan's coming after me and the world is trying to bear down on me, I have a verse that's of Scripture that's popping into my head. Maybe I'm despairing and I'm thinking, how am I going to make ends meet? And I'm thinking, wait, the Bible says, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And, and it keeps me from going deeper and deeper into that, the despair of, of not trusting God and faithlessness. And, and how is that happening? Because of the preciousness of God's words. The psalmist, in response, treasures what God says. He rejoices over it as great spoil in verse 162. He seeks the favor that he learns from what God says, having experienced his discipline. He keeps what God says. On we could go. And so what is the blessing that comes from this? Well, he's kept from sin, right? Like, where have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee? That's a big one right there. That's one of the reasons why... We memorize this verse early on in our lives often. Uh, but also, it helps against the dominion of iniquity. He is made reverent. God is made reverent through His Word. We are made reverent as we keep His Word. We're, in, we're encouraged that God will save the believer, as David was in verse 41. 
because of his loving kindness. God, you've given your word. and Take it to the bank, your loving kindness. And so as we walk through these sections, uh, eight verses at a time on Sunday evenings with interruptions along the way, I hope and my prayer is that we will deepen our love and really amazement, awe of God's Word for what it is. We can say, well, I, I know it's the Word of God, right? But here, the longest chapter in our Bible has been given and devoted to talking about how it integrates into our lives and how indispensable it really is. If I meet a believer and they tell me, you know, I just haven't been in the Word like I should have lately, not reading it. And what a shame that is in a day and age which everybody has the Word of God. They say, well, I don't have a, a Bible. I'm like, hey, do you got a smartphone? Then you can have a Bible, right? I mean, there, there, are, there is no excuse not to have God's Word. And you know what? We can always make time to do what we really want to do. And, and, and so... As one person once said, you know, uh, the sin will keep you from this book, and this book will help keep you from sin. The Word of God is breathed out by God and yet penned by man. Both of those things are true. When we say it's breathed out by God, sometimes we use the word inspiration, God inspired. That's literally what the word inspired means, breathed out. It is as if the writer of Scripture, whether it's Moses, whether it's David, whether it's Paul, is like a brass instrument, and God is the musician blowing the exact notes through that instrument, through that writer. And so as you read Paul, it sounds like Paul, right? You read Romans, like, it sounds like Paul, very technical, sounds like someone who used to be a Pharisee in many ways, very educated. Read Luke. Well, I could tell a lot of anatomy references here. Sounds like Dr. Luke, right? Read Psalms. Wow, sounds like a man after God's own heart. Sounds like someone who really spent a lot of time meditating on the hillsides watching sheep. Sounds like someone who's really gone through the affliction of being chased by his former employer and yet remaining true to God. These books they do sound like the writers because God has sovereignly intended it that way. But we would not say these are man's words, these are God's words. The result is the divine work of God with the inflections of the human agent. What God has given to us and how he has given it to us is really an indeed rare treasure. And so my hope, my prayer is that for all of us, myself included, we will spend the remainder of our days not only learning from this wonderful book that we call the Bible, but we will also really spend time admiring it as well and its divine author. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what we can gain. Lord, I know it's been probably a lot tonight. Hopefully we can go home and we can review a little bit of this and bring it back as we will uh, encounter much of this teaching again as we revisit in different sections. But Lord, may we walk away with an understanding of how amazing this book is. 
that it's not just the bestseller of all times. It's not just a fascinating storybook. It's not just something that lifts our spirits. Lord, we need to understand this is coming from the mind of God to the mind of man. Lord, I pray that it would be precious indeed to us even more. And Lord, that it would be our foundation for all that we do, all that we say, how we conduct ourselves, and how we then move forward in this life until we are caught up to be with you someday. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as we get around people, they may think it's a little bit peculiar when we talk about how important the Bible is. Wow, you, you go to church twice in one day? Why do you do that? Well, you know, we sing praises to God. We, you know, we, we learn from the Bible. And that's important to us. That's important to us. You know, and then you tell them, hey, and by the way, during the week, sometimes I'm listening to podcasts and sermons on Monday. Oh, wow. You know, they don't understand that. Well, you know what? If, as believers, we, we know how special this book is. We know how indispensable it is. And so part of it is using that as our testimony of loving to tell the story, right? The story of Jesus. We would not know of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins if it wasn't for the Bible. We would not know how to be saved. We would not know of God's eternal plan for us. This book is so important, and it gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness, we're told. And so I hope you've been stirred afresh, not that you don't love the Bible, not that you're not reading it, but that we would give it an even higher priority and defend our time in it all the more and not be ashamed to share that love with other people, even lost people, about how precious and how instrumental it is.